What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. I'm your host, Andrew Newer, coming at you on a Wednesday night on August 17th. That's the sweet sound of a sashu cream ale from Indeed Brewing. Let me know what you're drinking in the comment section below. We're going to be diving into the Minnesota Twins injury updates, as well as highlighting two players who have been playing at a high level. I'll be diving into the Timberwolves schedule and highlight two players who have stood out to me from the training camp and preseason for the Minnesota Vikings. So... Let's talk some Minnesota sports. Today's episode is brought to you by Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty. The real estate economy right now is crazy, and it's the perfect time to sell your house. Whether you're looking to sell, invest in real estate, or find your next dream home, then Eric Molsather at Coldwell Banker Realty is your guy. Eric is committed to bringing you an experience that goes beyond just buying or selling a home. If that sounds like you, give Eric Molsather a call at 651-357-6528 or email him at eric.molsather at cbrealty.com. That's eric with a k dot m-o-l-s-a-t-h-e-r at cbrealty.com and tell him Andrew sent you. All right, let's begin things talking about the Minnesota Twins and kind of going over the injury updates. Tyler Malley left today's game, obviously, I guess today, meaning on Wednesday afternoon, he left the game with some shoulder tightness, shoulder soreness, whatever you want to call it. He is giving, he is getting an MRI tomorrow. Uh, I guess, well, when this comes out, it will be tomorrow. So he will be getting an MRI on Thursday, August 18th, just to make sure there's nothing wrong. Rocco Rocco Baldelli kind of talked about saying he's not feeling any serious pain. He tried to stay in the game try to, you know, convince his way into it. Obviously, the the velocity wasn't there. He was six, seven, eight miles per hour under what he's usually throwing. So there was some concern. He has battled the shoulder injury earlier this year. So I'm sure it's just some shoulder fatigue that he's kind of going through. Uh, Amelia Pagan talked about it. He said as well that he's just been dealing with his shoulder soreness. So worst case scenario, I see it just being a 10-day IL thing. He should come back, but as of right now, he is in line to pitch in against the Houston Astros, which is obviously a good sign considering the Twins need all the help they can get from their starting pitching, and we'll kind of obviously talk about that here in a second with Josh Winder and Bailey Ober. Uh, Randy Dobnek, if you could remember him, yes, he is still with the Twins organization. He did get that big contract from them. He went through, he has been dealing with that finger injury. He pitched for the FCL Twins and went one inning, struck out one, didn't give up a hit or run. After that performance, he will be going to low A for a couple innings, and then the plan is to move him eventually to St. Paul. If you want to know more about him, you can just follow Darren Wilson at DWilsonKSTP on Twitter, or you can just listen to his podcast at The Scoop. He kind of talks about him a lot more there. Getting a healthy Randy Dobnak would be incredible. I mean, I'm not expecting him to be a starter anymore, but maybe maybe he's a guy who can be a middle relief option or just someone that comes in and pitches in the sixth or seventh inning. Dobnik has had success before, and we're seeing it now where if, like even per se, just the Wednesday game with Tyler Malley leaving, Minnesota doesn't have a middle relief option. For the longest time, it was Tyler Duffy, then he moved into that higher leverage situation as his career progressed. Minnesota just doesn't have 
that guy who will eat innings. Like today, Emilio Pagan went two innings. Yeah, I'm, you know, it was two innings, I'm pretty sure. And then they went to Josh Winder, Michael Fulmer, etc. Having a guy who can come in and do a middle relief, because even let's just say someone doesn't get injured, having a guy who can come in and throw two, three, four innings is so valuable, especially if, like, let's just say Joe Ryan comes in and he gets yanked in the third inning because he's given up six or seven runs. Throwing this guy in, in this scenario, would change everything for the Twins. It would save their bullpen for so they can use them later in the game. And when you're just kind of going down the stretch here in the season, you're going to need all the help you can get from your arms. And if they're fatigued, if they're not ready to go a certain day, that's going to that's gonna lose you ball games. So having Randy Dobnak come back and potentially be that middle relief option would go a long way. Obviously, they have Cole Sands, who could do that because he is he is he is a starter, but I'm not sure where I see him in line. Future-wise, I don't see him being a long-term starter. I think he has a really big career ahead of him as a really good reliever, kind of what we saw with Tyler Duffy, where he was a starter at first, and then the Twins sort of leaned him into relieving. Same with thing with Griffin, Griffin Jacks. He was a starter last year, but now the Twins are using him as a relief option. And both Duffy and Jax have benefited from it. And I think Randy Dobnak can be the same, just because he is not a high-velocity type of pitcher. Moving on to Josh Winder, Trevor Larnick, and Bailey Ober. I'm just kind of lumping them into one group. They're all progressing, and they should return sometime in September. Same thing with Ryan Jeffers. Expect him sometime in, in, in September as well. They're all working down in Fort Myers. I'll talk about it in a further podcast, but Ryan Jeffers returning... It'll be interesting to see what they do if they keep Sandy Leon there or what they do with Gary Sanchez because obviously Gary Sanchez has struggled, but there's still there's still something there with his offense. It hasn't fully clicked, but I still feel I feel better with Gary Sanchez up at the plate than I, I feel better with Gary Sanchez than I do with Ryan Jeffers. Defensively though. I would rather have anyone but Gary Sanchez. And I'll kind of be talking about that. Maybe I'll do it in an article or anything. I don't want to get too much in front of it just because we still have a couple weeks away before Ryan Jeffers is even considered to be brought it back. Uh, Kenta Maeda, Darren Wilson did talk about that. He does want to pitch again this season. It's just a question of can he? It's still a long shot, but he is down in Fort Myers. He is rehabbing. And... Obviously, Kenta Maeda had a lot of success with the Dodgers in that bullpen late in season for them. So maybe coming back, that will give him a shot at, you know, pitching in the bullpen. And if the Twins like what they see, maybe they keep him there. Or maybe this is just a first step for him becoming back, for him to come back to the rotation. Then you have a rotation of Mally, Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, maybe Chris Paddock. Kenta Maeda, some sort of mixture of Josh Winder, Bailey Ober, etc. And obviously you're only going to throw a five or six man rotation, but if Kenta Maeda can solidify himself as a starter moving forward again with Chris Paddock coming back, there's going to be a lot of depth there. And maybe you move some guys to the bullpen or maybe you trade one of those guys and get some more help in the bullpen or just another bat. Now let's talk about some of the guys that have been performing at a high level. Let's start with Nick Gordon. Former first-round pick, 
dealt with injuries, had that stomach issue in the minors. He did not have a lot of muscle. He was, I believe, like 160, 170 off the top of my head. He's increased his muscle as his thing as it's gone on, and he's I don't remember who exactly had the quote or who had the interview with it, but the idea is to have him he is planning on going to be around 200 pounds or so next season or around that 195 ish mark, which would be incredible. If you go on baseball reference, he is listed at six foot and 160. He's obviously not 160 pounds. He has added the muscle since then. And because he's added the muscle, because he's gotten himself right, we're now seeing him, you know, have a lot better of approach at the, at the plate. He's hitting for more power. He looks more confident. He looks more comfortable. Defensively, he's making the right moves. Sure, whatever. He didn't make the right move in that Los Angeles Angels game where he dove for the ball and it ended up costing the Twins a couple runs, which led the, them going, which led them to ultimately losing the game. Whatever. Nick Gordon is, I would say, on a scale of one to ten defensively, I would say he's a six or seven. He can play multiple positions for you. And he doesn't really mess up that much. For a guy who's playing that many positions, who's asked to do a lot for them, you know, he's ne- you never know where he's going to be playing. He could be in left. He could be in center. He could be at short. He could be at second base. He's provided so much value defensively for the Twins that I don't even give a shit if he has one or two mishaps per game. And he doesn't even have that per game. He just, there's just every once in a while where you're ripping your hair out and you're thinking, make the right read. But he's not Byron Buxton. Not many players are. Offensively, like I said, he's hitting for more power and he's just, he looks a lot more comfortable at the plate. This season right now, he is hitting 276 with a 321 on base percentage. He's slugging 421. He's hit five home runs. And he's driven in 22 RBIs. He's got a 1.3 wins above replacement. However, in July, and especially in August, he's been just on another level. July, he was hitting 280 with an on-base percentage of 333 and slugging 523. In August, he's hitting 341 with an on-base percentage of 380. I don't think that's right, but it's uh, it looks it's showing. 523 again for slugging, which I find it really hard to believe that he is slugging the same amount. I'm just going to do a quick look here. In July, he was slugging. Sorry. Okay. So in July, he was slugging 460 and a 512 slugging in August. So there you have that. Messed up on my part. My bad, guys. But he is a huge reason this twin, this team is winning games. His energy is contagious and. You see him in the cl- you see him in the dugout. You see him on the field. He's constantly like getting guys involved. His teammates love playing with him. Nick Gordon is bringing the energy. He's bringing the production at the plate and on defense, and it can't go unnoticed. Last week we talked about Carlos Correa and his struggles, and I even wrote an article last week saying could his struggles lead to him maybe picking up that option. And running it back with the Twins and hoping that he has a better season. Because at that point, he was hitting like 200 over the last like month and a half. He was playing terrible. 
But right after making that podcast, right after writing that article, he goes on to hit in his last seven games, 375 with an on-base percentage, and he's slugging 500 both. That's a one hundred. That's a one OPS. He's also hit one home run and two RBIs. Right now, the Twins are a half game back. Let me just check the score right now. So the Twins are a half game back on the Cleveland on the Cleveland Guardians. It is at eight forty p.m. The Guardians are losing to the Tigers again. If Minnesota, if the if Cleveland loses, Minnesota will be back and tied in first place. Who would have thought the Cleveland Guardians, who have been rolling, would struggle against the Detroit Tigers? Obviously, Minnesota has done that, their fair share of that in the past. But I mean, for a team that's been just just vibe check wise, they've been at a really high level. They're one of they were one of the hotter teams in baseball. And now they're struggling to beat the Detroit Tigers. Also on the Chicago White Sox, they are down by one on the Houston Astros. But just on that whole idea, the Twins are a half game back on the division. They need Carlos Correa to step up the most down the stretch. He's getting paid the most on this team. He has the experience and he's the most healthy. For as great as Byron Buxton is, he is limited. He can only play center field so many times this season. His knee has been bothering him. I'm sure I would put my whole life savings down that Byron Bucks will have some sort of knee procedure this offseason to clear up whatever he's dealing with. I don't think this is just something where you just rest and in a month's time he'll be good to go and hitting back in the cage and doing stuff. This is something that he's going to need a procedure on. So if you can't count on Byron Bucks in every single game, Carlos Correa has to be the guy that steps up. Sure, you have Jorge Polanco. You have Luis Arise. But Luis Arise, for as great as he's been offensively this season, he cannot do what Carlos Correa does, both offensively and defensively. Correa can get base hits. He strikes fear into pitchers. And obviously, Luis Arise can he can make pitchers scared that he's going to get a base hit. But Carlos Correa can hit for power. He can get on base. He takes quality at-bats, and his defense is one of the best in the league. Correa finishing the season like this will improve the the Twins' chances at making the playoffs and ultimately winning the division. Let's kind of look at the upcoming series against the Texas Rangers. It is a perfect time to be playing them right now. They just fired their president of basketball, sorry, not their president of basketball operations. They fired their Pobo and their manager, Chris Woodward. They are spiraling right now. Over the last 10 games, they are 5-5. Five and five, And I think I just saw it. Let me look. It is the top of the six. And the they are losing to the Oakland Athletics. It is 3-1, and the Athletics have bases loaded with two outs. The Texas Rangers can't even beat the Oakland Athletics right now. Right now, the pitching matchups are still to be determined at this point, but it does look right now, at least, they will be facing Martin Perez and Glenn Otto. Perez has obviously been really great this season, but Otto, he has an ERA that's really close to five. So this is another series at home that the Minnesota Twins need to take advantage of because if they can keep winning these games and taking advantage of the schedule and Cleveland loses a couple here, 
the Twins are right back in first place and in control of their own destiny. The Minnesota Timberwolves dropped their schedule. I am beyond excited for basketball season. I One of my friends today asked me, am I ready for football? Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm ready for football. But honestly, not that much because I am over the moon about the Minnesota Timberwolves. I have never been more excited about a season than this year. I honestly, I don't even know. I've been watching so much highlights. I've been just, I need some sort of basketball in my life that I'll probably be watching Rudy Gobert play in the Euro League tournament stuff in September. I'm so excited. So let's dive into the schedule. The home opener is on October 19th against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Chet Holmgren, you are about to get your welcome to the NBA moment. Chet Holmgren has to play Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert in his first NBA game. Good luck. Then you have the Utah Jazz on the October 21st. That'll be the first game Utah is in Minnesota where you're going to have Patrick Beverly. Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Leandro Balmero. That is going to be such an electric game. I'm trying to decide if I want to go to the home opener or the Utah Jazz game, or maybe I just go to both. That Utah Jazz game is literally going to be so electric. It's going to be awesome. That's going to be the first time that Rudy Gobert plays against his former team. And I really hope Donovan Mitchell is still on the Utah Jazz because I can't wait for him to get stuffed at the rim by Rudy Gobert. Looking at the schedule, though, the Timberwolves have a great start to the season. Their hardest game is until November 1st against the Phoenix Suns. Their first eight games goes like this. OKC, Utah. Then you go to OKC on the road. Then you come back home to play the San Antonio Spurs twice. The Los Angeles Lakers. Then you go on the road to play the San Antonio Spurs. And then the Phoenix Suns. Their first, they have one road game within their first six games. And they're playing the Oklahoma City Thunder. Maybe San Antonio and Greg Popovich squeak, squeak a win out, but with no DeJounte Murray, that Spurs team is pretty damn bad. The Lakers could win with, you know, with LeBron James and he's healthy and he's trying to prove everyone that keep that same energy kind of bullshit. It's not happening. The Lakers suck. I cannot wait to watch them fall. The hardest game is the Phoenix Suns. You can really honestly see this team starting out 7-0. And the only reason that they wouldn't start 7-0 is because they're still trying to get those early kinks out of the, you know, just sort of figure everything out. Like their whole dynamic offensively, defensively, etc. But there should be no reason that this team doesn't go 7-0 to start out. Possibly 8-0. I think the Minnesota Timberwolves are better than the Phoenix Suns. Again, you can bookmark that. The hardest stretch, I think, or just like, not the hardest stretch, I guess. I'll be getting to the hardest stretch, actually. That's coming up. The longest road stand that the Timberwolves have is December 9th to the 16th, where they play the Utah Jazz, the Portland Trailblazers back-to-back, the Los Angeles Clippers, and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Obviously, the LA Clippers are the hardest opponent. Maybe Portland with Dame there and Jeremy Grant, etc. But I don't really think Portland's that good. 
if that's your longest road stretch, you're sitting pretty. I mean, seven days a week, they're basically on the road for a week. They can handle that, especially against lesser opponents. You know, if that's just like a a long road stand and you're playing the Warriors and you go into Phoenix and you're playing the Clippers and the Lakers, that would suck. They don't have that. The hardest stretch all of this season is December 18th to the 30th, where they play the Chicago Bulls, the Dallas Mavericks twice. And then you go on the road to play Boston, Miami, New Orleans. And to finish it off, you play the Milwaukee Bucks on the road. To play Chicago, Dallas, Boston, Miami, New Orleans, Milwaukee. Those are all playoff teams or just playoff caliber teams. You know, you never know what New Orleans will do. Chicago, they were one of the best teams in the East before fighting kind of all those injuries. That's going to be a really hard stretch. And that's going to be a hard way to end the 2022 year. I think realistically, just on paper, looking at everyone's rosters, obviously we don't know how each team is going to fare. What the hell? Something just fell. We're good. Realistically, you see them going 500. Maybe if some of these were, obviously they are, some of them are at home, but to play Boston, Miami, and Milwaukee on the road, that's not going to be easy. And if you're playing Chicago and Dallas right before that, they're, you're going to see a lot of fatigue, most likely. The second hardest stretch we're going to be seeing comes in late February to early March. You play the Golden State Warriors on February 26th. That's on the road. Then you go on the road to play the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Sacramento Kings. And I I know the Sacramento Kings of those four do not sound tough, but I honestly think that the Sacramento Kings will be a surprise team this year. You have Darian Fox, the I cannot blink, I cannot believe I'm blanking on the on the new rookie's name. I cannot I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. Doesn't matter. The rookie from Iowa is he was incredible during the G League. And obviously, I mean not the G League, the Summer League. And obviously the Summer League is not the same thing as the actual NBA, but the Kings look like they got it right. Gives Sabonis. To be honest, I don't think Sacramento could be taken that lightly. They still have Harrison Barnes. After that, after that four-game road stretch, you go to play Philly and Brooklyn at home, and kind of on the on, kind of on the same lines of Sacramento. Brooklyn is a wild card. Will they have Kevin Durant? Will they have Kyrie? Is Ben Simmons still playing? There's so many question marks. The Brooklyn Nets are the hardest team to actually predict this season. If everyone plays, they have title aspirations. If they trade some players and or players are sitting out because they're disgruntled, they could easily be one of the worst teams. So that Brooklyn game right there could be really tough or could be really easy. Then you go to Atlanta to play one game on the road. Then you come back home to play the Boston Celtics, the Chicago Bulls, and the Toronto Raptors. And then after all those games, you have the Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns a few games later. That's a pretty tough stretch. You're talking about if KD and all of them are playing, if Sacramento 
is playing kind of high more if they're playing better than the expectations realistically that's all playoff caliber teams and even if they're not they're all they're, they're all going to be fighting for a playoff spot that's going to be the second hardest stretch of the season beyond the first seven eight games or whatever the second easiest spot is kind of in january there are some harder teams sprinkled in there but for the most part they're going to be playing detroit the houston rockets the utah jazz and the sacramento kings and i know i talked about the sacramento kings you know being potentially that playoff team and surprising people they could also be playing terrible basketball in january you just never know but I'm going to be predicting 52 and 30 moving forward. Let me know what you think. And just comment, I guess, or just send me a tweet. What do you think the Timberwolves record will be next season? I want to know. Lastly, let's close things off talking about the Minnesota Vikings. Two players that have surprised me. One, obviously, you're probably going to be like, dude, obviously. But the first one, Ed Ingram, he's pretty much locked up the number one spot at right guard. He's played Jesse. He's outplayed Jesse Davis, which I mean, sure you could maybe say that it's just because Jesse Davis has been pretty piss poor, but Ed Ingram has looked really good. And here's kind of what he had to say about playing with the first team. He said, "It's good. I've showed that I can roll with the big boys and stuff like that. So I just want to keep proving to myself that I can be in that position." I mean. You have to love it. Even Christian Derrissaw is liking what he sees. Here's what Christian Derrissaw had to say. Ed's a stud. He's one of the good ones for sure. I'm glad he's on our team. He's getting better every day. Taking He's taking the coaching and putting it on the field. The sky's the limit. I don't know. I'm really excited about Ed Ingram. Obviously, he's a very talented player out of LSU. and. After getting drafted, I did a podcast with one of my friends. Kind of talk about each draft pick, and I didn't really dive too much into it, and I don't want to talk about it. But obviously, the reason Ed Ingram did fall is because some of the legal issues. But he is a very talented player. If Ed Ingram can play at like... If Ed Ingram doesn't play like a rookie player and, you know, kind of looks more like that second or third year guy in year one. The offensive line is going to be really good with Christian Derrissaw. The stuff has been very high on him. If Christian Derrissaw, Ed Ingram, Brian O'Neill, and then I obviously don't like Garrett Bradbury, but there are some pieces there that you can see and be excited about with this offensive line, giving Kirk Cousins more time. Dalvin Cook hitting those open holes. And then obviously the next guy, uh, well, actually I want one more quick note on Ed Ingram before we move into the next guy. Ed Ingram posted the highest PFF grade from any rookie offensive lineman in the first preseason game. And if that doesn't get you excited, excited, I don't know what will. Last guy, obviously this isn't a shock, but Justin Jefferson. Justin Jefferson has been one of the best receivers in football since he's entered the league. And he's dominating everyone right now. There is no one 
on that San Francisco 49ers team that could guard him today. And I'm calling it right now. I think he hits 2,000 yards. This is a new Kevin O'Connell offense. Kirk Cousins is fired up. You saw the comments today. He he looks great. This new offense, Justin Jefferson getting another year under his belt. This guy honestly is the limit. And I really think Justin Jefferson is going to have the best season posted by any NFL wide receiver in the history of the league. Let me know who's been kind of sparking your interest and just like what you're really excited for moving forward. Let me know. Hit me in the comment section below or just tweet at me at Let's Talk Vikes. But anyways, that wraps up our 21st episode. Thank you all for listening. Cheers.